Go ahead and get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter number 25. Matthew chapter number 25. It is good every week to see more and more people starting to venture out and, and come back to church. And it is good to see that when people don't get here on time, they have to sit way close to the front that they're not used to. And uh, I'm not talking to anybody in particular, uh, but actually several of you have, are in different spots because everyone's taking your places uh, but it is good to see everybody here this morning. Brother Paul, good to see you. Miss Imogene and Debbie, good to see y'all. Haley, Nick, good to see y'all. It's great to see Miss Trudy here with us this morning. I'm going to start naming people and forget somebody, so let me scan. Fred and Nancy, it's good to see y'all. The Pauls, yeah, it's good to see Pauls. I said hi to them, though, but the Pauls, it's good to see them. The England family, it's good to see everybody here uh, this morning. Did I get anybody that wasn't here before? I'm not 100% sure. If I did, I'm sorry. Uh, but it is good to see everyone here today. We'll get your Bibles over to Matthew chapter number 25. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll get into our message this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to come into your family and to worship you. God, we're so grateful that we can once again come together. Uh, Lord, still not like it was, but God, it is good to be in your house with your children singing your praises and studying your word. God, I pray now that as we open up the Bible, as we study the truth that you have for us today, God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray, God, that your spirit would have complete and total freedom this morning. Lord, move that each and every pew. I pray that you would touch each and every heart, do a work in each and every life this morning. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and speak through me. God, help me to say what needs to be said, what should be said, and Lord, help me not to say what I should not say, but help everything that's said and done bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, this morning we are going to be finishing up our series we've been in for the last couple weeks uh, called Forward Through Faith. Uh, for these last couple weeks we've been seeing how we can finish through faith what God has started in our life. And in the Christian life, it's not just starting well that matters, but finishing what God begins in your life. And we've, we've all had the, the experience where we start off strong in something. Maybe it's a diet. Maybe it's a workout uh, routine. Maybe it's some hobby that we think we're going to do. You know, I've been trying to learn the guitar for the last six years. I just can't get myself to buy a guitar. And so uh, we, all, we all have these goals and these plans and these desires and we, we're gung-ho for it, but then we don't finish. And it's, it's true in our Christian life as well. We'll start off strong with a Bible reading program, a devotional plan. We're going to be more faithful to church. We're going to be more faithful to giving. We're going to do this and that for God. We're going to get involved in a ministry here and we're going to serve there. And we get really excited about it and, and get revved up about it. But then after a while, it just kind of stops and fades and the excitement goes away and we don't finish what God began in our hearts so we've been looking at what it uh, we've been talking about what it is that gives us the faith and the strength to finish well with God it isn't making a decision that counts it's seeing that decision through for his honor and for his glory. And, you know, I can work you up by preaching a sermon. We can get the music right and get an emotional response going where you feel compelled to make a decision. But that excitement of that decision is not going to last forever. So you have the faith to finish strong. 
It's staying the course. It's finishing that matters with God. So this morning we're going to uh, look, be looking at Matthew chapter number 25. We're going to start in verse number 14. <clears throat> so Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse number 14. The Bible says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Now, these, these talents that this master has given to his servants are not abilities. He didn't give one guy the ability to sing and play the piano and juggle at the same time. Talents, in this, this context, is a unit of money. Specifically, the talents were how much the money weighed. And in this case, a talent is about 6,000 denarii, which to us sounds like maybe a good amount of money, but you got to remember in this time, 300 denarii was a year's wage for the average person. So the one who, one talent is 20 years worth of wages. In today's money, one talent is about $500,000. So the guy who was given five talents, he was given $2.5 million to invest. So this is not just pocket change. This is a huge amount of money. And, and every servant was given a different amount. And they had no say as to what they were given. They didn't put a request in to get a certain amount or ask for a certain amount. The master gave them what he felt he could give them, and each of them got a different amount. So now look at verse number 16. <coughs> uh, then he that had received the five talents went and traded it. <coughs> Uh, went and traded it with the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. So after a few years, we don't know how many years, we don't know how long the master was gone, but the master was gone for several years. And after several years, he comes back and he calls his servants who he had given this exorbitant amount of money to, he calls them in to kind of check up on them, see what they have done with his money. And the one who received the largest sum of money, he's excited. He's glad to see the master because he's, he's done well. He invested $2.5 million and he's gained $2.5 million. So he's taken his master $5 million back saying, hey, you gave me 2.5, but I got you, you know, I got, I've given you 5 million back. So he's excited about what he's able to do for the master and show the master. And he's just excited to, to be there because he's done an incredible job. He has been looking forward to this moment. Let's keep reading verse number 21. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy 
of the Lord. Since he had been, been faithful over what the master had given him, you know, and it's amazing to me, he goes, oh, you've been faithful over little things. $2.5 million to me is not a little thing. But he's like, hey, you've been faithful over a little, so I'm going to make you ruler over much. So because he had proved himself trustworthy and faithful and hardworking, the master rewards him with more responsibility. Now let's look at verse number 22. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents besides them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things that will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. So this, man, this servant, he did the exact same thing as the first guy. He doubled the master's money. Now, he didn't have as much money to start with, so he didn't end with as much, but he still worked hard. He still doubled the investment the master had given him. So he receives the same commendation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things, a million dollars. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. Then we come to the third servant. Let's look at verse number 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strawed. Real quick, before we go any further, does the guy who's given away millions of dollars to a servant seems like a hard dude? Doesn't seem like a hard guy to me. Seems like a great guy. I want to be this guy's employee. So, but he's like, oh, I know you're a hard man. And so he, he's got his excuse. Uh, he says, and I was afraid, verse 25, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. So there is a drastically different tone between the first two servants and this guy. The first two servants were excited. They'd worked hard. They'd earned money. They doubled the investment of their master, and they were, they were looking forward to giving back to him what he'd given them plus extra. They were looking forward to seeing the master again and saying, hey, look how hard I've worked for you. But this guy, he's scared of the master. Now look, he didn't steal any money. He didn't lose any money. He didn't waste the money on drugs and partying and, and all kinds of things. He, 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 he didn't do anything wrong with the money. The master gave him $500,000 and he gave the master back $500,000. He gave back every cent that he had been given. So why is he so scared? Look at verse number 26. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Because you should have at least put it in the bank and then when I came back I would have gotten the money I'd given you plus at least a little bit of interest on it. And so he, he calls him a wicked and slothful servant. Then 28, take therefore the talent from him that, and give it to him which hath the ten talents. For unto everyone that hath, that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. 
and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, technically, this servant did not do anything wrong. He did not waste the money. He did not put it in bad investments and say, Lord, you know, you gave me 500000 I lost every single dime. I got nothing. He didn't run away with it. He didn't steal it. He, he didn't do anything technically wrong. But he is condemned by the master. Not for what he did, but for what he didn't do. See, most believers think that wickedness has to do, has to do with some, doing something wrong. Breaking a commandment. You know, the big, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery. Have no, and we think, okay, if we don't break one of those, then we're not being wicked. But a murderer, a liar, a thief, they are considered wicked by us. And they're wicked in the eyes of God, too. That's sin in the eyes of God. But his servant is called wicked because he didn't do anything. It's not that he didn't do anything wrong, that he did something wrong. He didn't do anything. He failed to invest what he had been given for the master. Failing to use your life for God is wicked. That's what Jesus says. Failing to use what God has given you and blessed you with for his kingdom and for his glory is wicked. You know, we, we have a really old dog at home named Max. He is the, the sweetest dog you're ever going to meet. He is dumb as a box of rocks, but he is super sweet. He's blind. He can't see anymore. I mean, you know, if you, if you move a chair, he gets really confused and bumps into it all the time. So he's a sweet dog, he's an old dog, and he's a blind dog. And since he's old and blind and dumb, he doesn't really do anything except lay around the house. He doesn't get in the trash. He doesn't get into fights. He doesn't bite people. He just lays around. To most people, he's the perfect Christian. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He doesn't cuss. He doesn't, you know, we had him fixed years ago. He doesn't run around. He is the perfect Christian. He has broken no laws of God. But being a perfect person and not breaking the laws of God, that's not what being a servant of God is. A servant of God is someone that takes what they have been given and invests it for the kingdom of God. So this morning, as we finish this series, I want us to see why this servant didn't invest what he had been given and see the lessons we can learn from this story. Now, I'm sure one reason he didn't invest what he had been given was because it felt risky. He could lose everything. Now, the master, though, condemns him, says, you could have at least put it in the bank. It's safe in the bank. Now, I don't know how safe banks were back then, but, you know, he says, you could have at least put it in the bank and got me some, some interest on what you... You could have had a safe investment. You didn't have to go out and do these big risks to, to try to double your money like the other guys did. You could have just stuck it away in a bank and earned me some interest, and that would have been doing something. So, but it felt risky. He could have lost all of his money. He was afraid of losing 
control. And that's what a lot of our issues are. When we lose control, we don't know how things will end. He could have ended up with nothing. Yes, he could have doubled his money, sure, but he could have ended up with nothing. And so he thought it was a better idea to cling to what he had and to hold on to it tightly instead of risk losing it. See, this parable tells us that that type of thinking is wicked. To be obedient to God is to risk what we have for his kingdom. And throughout the Bible, you see believers are called upon to take risks for God. And one of the things, you know, risk is a step of faith. You're stepping out, not knowing what's going to happen. You know, David, he had no guarantee that he was going to defeat Goliath when he stepped out on that field. He took, you know how I know that? Because he took five stones. If he knew God was going to kill him with one, he'd just taken one. But he took five with him. Why? Because he didn't know what was going to happen. He trusted God. He risked for God, but he went out there anyway. Abraham... He had no idea that God would spare Isaac or, or spare his son when they went up on the mountain to sacrifice him. In 1 Samuel, there's an incredible story about a victory between Jonathan and his armor bearer where they go and fight an entire uh, garrison of Philistines. And when you read the account, you see Jonathan had no guarantee that God was going to be with him. Look at 1 Samuel verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 6. <coughs> and Jonathan said to the young man, that bear his armor, come and let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us if there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Do you see what he said there? He said, let's go fight these guys. Maybe God will be with us. Maybe we'll be victorious. You know, it's two of us. It's a whole garrison of them. Let's go, let's go try it. Maybe it'll work out for our good. You know, if I'm the armor bearer, I'm thinking, maybe God will be, will be with us. I'm going to need more than a maybe before I go toting your armor over there just to get killed by these Philistines. But they went and God was with them and they won. You know, when Queen Esther went before the king to plead for the lives of her people, she had no idea what would happen. She put her own life at risk with no revelation from God. She simply said, if I perish, I perish. You know, the Apostle Paul, his entire life was risking for God one time after another. He even went to Jerusalem not knowing what was going to happen. Look at what he described his ministry in 2 Corinthians 11. He said, of the Jews, five times uh, received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, and painfulness, and watchings often, and hunger, and thirst, and fastings often, and cold, and nakedness. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Now, I don't believe Paul knew exactly what was going to happen to him when he set out to serve God. Because I know Paul is a great believer, a great Christian, 
But if God gives him this list of, hey, Paul, here's what's going to happen to you. He may have thought twice and said, you know what, God, send Barnabas. I'll just stick around here. He had no idea what was going to happen, but he risked everything for God time and time again. The entire first church was a generation of believers that took risks for God. Every time they preached, every time they had a convert, every time they had a prayer meeting, every time they performed a miracle, they risked getting killed for God. John Piper says this, he goes, the Christian life is a call to risk. You either live with risk or you waste your life. You know, we want a guarantee. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to know, okay, if I, if I do this, will it be successful? Will everything be okay? But God doesn't give us guarantees. Throughout Scripture, He rarely gave His people guarantees. In fact, the Bible shows us exactly what happens when we refuse to take risks for God. Remember when the nation of Israel came to the promised land, the Jordan River, and they sent over 12 spies to spy out the land? They all came back. Two of them said, man, it's great. Grapes the size of volleyballs, rivers of milk and honey. Let's go conquer this land. But 10 of them said, Ugh. but there's giants in the land. We can't take them. We need to wait for a better time to go over. And the, the two spies, they're like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. God's with us, let's go. But these 10 spies refused to go over and risk anything for God. And God punished the entire generation except for these two spies because they were unwilling to risk for God, and so they never saw the promise. And in Numbers 13, God calls the report of the 10 spies evil. They didn't lie. There were giants in the land. They weren't lying about what was going on, but they had no faith in God. And so God says your report, even though it's truthful, is an evil report. But it was evil because they refused to see through the eyes of faith and take a risk for God. So those 10 spies, God killed them with a plague, and then everyone else who believed them were condemned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every one of them died. And then those two spies, Joshua and Caleb, took the rest of the other generation across the promised land to do what God had wanted them to do 40 years before. Look, risking for God is dangerous, but not risking for God is more dangerous. So what is it God is asking you to risk for his kingdom. Maybe, maybe God's asking you to step up and be a Sunday school teacher. We need a bunch of them. Maybe God's been laying on your heart to be a Sunday school teacher, but you don't want to take the risk. Maybe God's asking you to, to help start a new growth group or to help get involved and start a new ministry or get involved in one of the ministries we have here. Whatever it is, we, we have to take the risk for God. Maybe God's leading you to finally take the plunge and, and join the church or, or take the risk of trusting him with your money and start tithing and offering. Whatever it is, you have to take the risk because refusing so take the risk and playing it safe is wickedness. And obedience always involves risks. See, disobedience, it gives us the illusion of safety, but we're wicked in the eyes of God. Taking risk always causes fear. That's why the servant said, 
I was afraid, so I didn't risk anything. See, the first they're excited to see the master return. They weren't scared. They were eager. So what can we learn? How do we, these two servants, they show us, these servants, they show us two things that we can learn about how we can not be afraid and take the risk for God. So here's the first thing that they did that we can do to not be afraid and take the risk. Number one, trust the master's goodness. See, the first two servants, they trusted that the master was good, that the master was trustworthy. So they had freedom to take the risk because they trusted the master was good. You know, Paul tells us in Romans why he was willing to take so many risks. In Romans 8, it says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that has risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. But nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul knew the character of God. He knew the love that God for, had for him. So he was willing and eager to risk everything for God and his kingdom. The cross of Christ shows us how much God loves us. The cross shows us how God feels about us. When we study the cross and we see how he was beaten, how his beard was ripped out, how he was mocked and ridiculed and hung on the cross and our sins were placed on him and he cried out to God and died for our sins and was buried and rose again three days later to reconcile us to the Father. When we see that incredible love that he has for us and how he risked everything for us, we should eagerly risk anything for him. Because of what he did, we should feel safe jumping for him. God risked it all, and God gave it all for us. And we start to view things through that lens. Why is it not worth the risk to serve him? You know, Jesus didn't die on the cross so he could have a comfortable life. He didn't die on the cross so he could have no impact on eternity. He didn't, he didn't die on the cross so he could have a comfortable church. Look, if you're able to go to church and feel comfortable, you're not going to a real church. You're not supposed to feel comfortable. You're supposed to feel agitated and eager to do something for God and, co and co prompted to do something for God. And I'm not talking about the pews. Y'all, the pews are super comfortable. Yes, they are. That's why they're still there. 
But the Spirit of God should be stirring in your heart when you go to church, when people sing His praise, and you think, man, I've got to do something more for God. God did not die and rise again, so we should have a comfortable church that does nothing for our community. He died so that nations would worship Him. He died so that we could transform this city for His honor and for His glory. And we don't honor God when we talk about how to preserve the church and protect our children. Because God didn't just die for our children. He died for everybody outside these walls. He wants us to go outside these walls and compel them to come in. God died so we could risk for His honor and for His glory. He doesn't want us comfortable. He wants us moving. He wants us risking. He wants us living worthy of His sacrifice. And anything less is unfaithfulness to our Master. It's, un, it's wickedness. And faith in our Father compels us to trust Him and take risks. But there's a second reason that they were willing to risk for the, father, for the Master. Not just because they trusted in His in his, in his goodness, they had the desire to share the master's joy. Not only did they trust the master, they wanted to share in the joy of the master building his kingdom. You know, the first two servants, they were eager to see the master come back because they, they had risks for him and they were eager to, to see his kingdom expanded and to see his joy in their success so they took the risk. And the master gives them two things because they risked for him. He gives them greater responsibility and greater joy. So first, he gives them greater responsibility. When the master sees how faithful these servants were, he increases their responsibility. They were able to keep what they had originally been given and manage everything they had earned. Plus, the guy who earned who had five talents, he was given the talent of the, the unfaithful servant, the wicked servant, to manage his. Now, look, there's a lot of things that people talk about what this means on earth or in eternity. And to be honest, what it means in eternity, I'm not a thousand percent sure. I don't know if you're faithful on earth, God's going to put you in control of more angels or more kingdoms or whatever. I don't know. And to be honest with you, all I care about in eternity is being with God. So that's good for me. But I can tell you it translates to more responsibility on earth. When God sees us faithful in what he blesses us with, he gives us more to use for his glory and for his kingdom. That is why a lot of us, myself included, struggle financially. Because we're not faithful what God gives us, so why would he give us more? And if we're wasting our money on frivolous things that don't matter for eternity, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend any money on it. I'm not saying, well, well, if you drive a nice car, have a nice house, or have cable, you really shouldn't have cable. You should have Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or all of them. But if, and I'm saying if you have this stuff, then you're wicked. But if that's what's driving us and we're investing all of our, our financial resources for our pleasure now, God's not going to bless us with more. Because he's seeing we're not using what he gives us wisely. When he sees us faithful, he gives us more for his kingdom. When you know, we, we take on debt we can't afford, we waste money on unnecessary things, we, we refuse to obey God in our tithes and offerings, and 
since we can't have the little that we have, and let's be honest, in 2020 America, the little we have is a whole lot. But the we can't handle what we have, why give us more to waste? It's the same thing with our time. We don't manage our time well, so we're, we're always complaining we don't have enough time. Now, if you manage your time well, God's not going to give you an extra day. That's not how it works, but he does make the time that we have more useful and less stressful. That's why some ministries struggle. They aren't managing why God give, what God has given them well, so why give them more? You know, a lot of pastors and ministry leaders, they pray the prayer of Jabez, asking for God to increase their coast, but they're, they're not managing the coast God has given them, so why would he give them anything more? God says, you, you get greater responsibility when you risk what I give to you, not for yourself, we risk it for his kingdom. See, these first two servants, they had no idea that when they got back, the master was going to say, hey, keep what you had, keep what you earned, and keep managing it. They were working not for their benefit, they were working for the master. He's gone there like, we're going to build his kingdom. We're going to build his wealth and his riches. And when the master came back, he gave them greater responsibility, but he also gave them greater joy. After giving the greater responsibility, he invites them into a greater joy. This is the joy that drove Jesus to do everything he did on the earth, even go to the cross. In Hebrews 12, 2. Says, looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus was facing the worst torture that any human had ever endured, he was filled with joy. And the joy that was driving him was the joy of seeing me reconciled to the Father. Of seeing my sins forgiven for his death, burial, and resurrection. It was the joy of seeing me redeemed and adopted into the family of God because of what he did for me. The joy of my restoration was what drove him. And so the shame of the cross was nothing to him. His joy for what I would receive through his pain and his sacrifice is what drove him. So my joy is for what I am able to do for him because of what he did for me. When we risk for his kingdom, that joy becomes ours as we see others reconciled to the Father. As we see others brought into the family of God, as your joy increases, the things of earth that we used to find joy in, they don't mean as much because we start to realize the only thing that really matters is what we do for His kingdom. You know, we've all heard the saying, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only what we do for him, the only thing that truly matters is what we do for him, for his kingdom, for eternity. You know, how much money you save for retirement doesn't matter. And I'm not saying, again, don't save for retirement because you need to. But it doesn't matter how much, you know, you, you die with $10 million in the bank. You know who it matters to? The people who are getting that $10 million, but not you. 
Doesn't matter to God. But you die and you've given everything you can and everything you, you were able to and you serve God with your life and you close your eyes in death and you open them up and you see God say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's all that matters. To hear God say, well done. How many hours you put into the office, doesn't matter. But how many hours you put in showing Jesus to others, that's what matters. You know, the master, he's returning, and it matters how you leveraged and risks the talents that he has given you for his kingdom, not for yours. You know, God, he doesn't want us to live a safe, comfortable life. He wants us to risk things to build his kingdom. So we have to ask ourselves, what opportunities has God laid on your heart where he wants you to risk, but you may be scared or you may be uncertain? You know, the people in the Bible, they all took risks and had different opportunities to step out by faith to risk for God. You know, Rahab risked everything by hiding the spies. David risked it all by fighting the giant. The disciples risked everything by spreading the gospel. So we are all going to have different opportunities to risk for God's kingdom, but he wants us to step out on faith and risk it for him. You know, to play it safe is wicked in the eyes of God. So this morning, as Miss Trudy begins to play, I simply ask you, what is God asking you to risk? Let's all stand together.